Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, this is a supposedly beer-themed podcast, <laughs> yet neither of us is having a drink right now. What is going on? Uh, well, first of all, I'm not sure that you know for sure that I don't have a drink. I feel like you're assuming that I don't have a beer because it's 9 a.m., and I teach later today. You're totally right. That was a bad <laughs> assumption. Alexa, what are you drinking? Uh, it was, in fact, a correct assumption, though. I'm drinking coffee, um, which actually is perhaps the best coffee I've had at my department in the 10 years that I've been here, um, which is because I finally brought my own coffee. So we have like one of those Keurigs. Yeah. Yeah, I know those. Yeah. I remember you came to my house back in the dark ages when I also had a Keurig. And you were really unimpressed. You were like, is there a way to make this thing stronger? I was actively disdainful of the yeah. Keurig. Yeah. Extremely judgmental. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, that checks out. Well, so I haven't had great coffee from a Keurig ever, I don't think. I used to have lower coffee standards. But they have these like little um, pods that you can fill with your own coffee, which I discovered recently. So I brought my own coffee today. And it's pretty good. Oh, interesting. So you like grind your own coffee, put it in the pod, and then pod goes in the Keurig machine and it's reusable? Not quite that fancy. Yes, but I just brought, I bought ground coffee. My home coffee gets ground, but I think my office coffee will be pre-ground. Yeah, that seems fair. And then you have to take the little pod out and like wash it out to reuse it? Yeah. Wow. Well, I also find that to be much more environmentally responsible. Yeah. Um, I thought so too. The only thing that I still need is um, half and half. I like half and half of my coffee and my department has a non-dairy creamer, which I'm very opposed to. Oh no, like the powder kind? (laughs) (laughs) They just hate me. Why? (laughs) Why are they doing this to you? That's terrible. So, okay. You know, by the time this episode comes out, it will have been three weeks since we released our last episode. We have an extra week in there because I was moving back to Toronto and unavailable. So our listeners, I'm sure, are dying to know (laughs) what is going on with your kitchen. I do have, finally, kitchen updates. So last week, they started um, actually putting new stuff into my kitchen. So now I have cabinets um, and I have floors. Um, I've learned two things from this process so far. One is, so right now, my oven and dishwasher are just like sitting in the dining room to be out of the way. And I was like, okay, this is a um, probably a good time to like clean the oven, you know. Like, first of all, it's disgusting, and normally you can't like see the disgusting parts because they're like, you know, like uh, nestled into the cabinets. They're mercifully hidden from you. Yes, but since it's like sitting in my living room, I have to walk past the sides of my oven every day. So I was like, okay, I need to clean this thing. And ovens are disgusting, is what I learned. Like, it took me like maybe an hour. To like get this thing to like a passable level of cleanliness. Are you, you're talking about the inside or the outside or both? Not the inside. Well, okay. It depends on what you count. So like not where you would put like a roasting pan or something like that. Um, But like the spot beneath the stove. So it's a, my oven is a gas stove and you can like lift the like panel on the top um, to get oh boy so that part was like really horrifying i was almost like like in a way it's nice that you can lift it to clean it but i almost wish that it was just like sealed shut so that yeah i kind of don't want to know <laughs> um and then the other thing that i learned is that so the next thing that happens is countertops and if you had asked me how this works i would have said like okay they know what the dimensions of the cabinets are 
Um, so they'll just like make counters that fit those dimensions. But apparently walls of houses are so inconsistent and like wavy that the, in order to make the countertops flush with the walls, they have to measure it with a laser. Whoa. Isn't that cool? <laughs> yeah. So they're bringing in lasers, huh? Yeah. There was like a guy in my kitchen the other day with a laser, like measuring the imperfections in the wall so that the countertops will exactly match those. Man, I, uh, I'm i excited for when this all comes together into the final product. Have they given you like a timeline for when that's going to happen? No, they're a little hesitant to give me a final date, but I think it will be within the next couple of weeks. Actually, they've been extremely fast. Like they got the, once this, the um, materials came in, it was like the cabinets came in on September 1st and then like they were like putting them in my house on September 2nd. So, so far it's been pretty good. So um, we have an article about individualism that you suggested uh, that that we're going to talk about in our uh, main segment. But first, I wanted to ask you, Alexa. So as you probably know, uh, President Biden uh, has, by executive order, instituted student loan forgiveness. And the way this works is if you've taken out student loans, I think for basically uh, anything. So it can be an uh, undergrad degree, it can be a postgraduate degree. You're going to have $10,000 of that forgiven as long as you make under $125,000. Or if you're a member of a couple that files jointly, if you jointly make less than $250,000. Uh, so in that case, you get $10K forgiven. Um, some categories of people, namely those who receive Pell Grants, which are like grants to lower income students, are eligible for $20,000 of student loan forgiveness. What's your take on this? Yeah, I don't know. My take is that this sounds great. So it sounds like a way for um, the federal government sort of post hoc to be helping people to pay for their education. And education is very expensive in the United States. So um, yeah, I mean, at first glance to me, it sounds sounds good. What do you have against this, Yoel? Yeah, so right. So so when we when we texted about this topic, I was like, I want to talk about student loan forgiveness. I think it's a terrible policy. And Alexa was like, what? So, so yeah, I mean, I think basically the first important thing is that it's not like this money is magically coming out of nowhere. Sure. Right. This was right. This is this is spending, is the way to think about it. So you're spending taxpayer dollars. And I think whenever you're spending money, you should think about are you spending that money in a way that makes sense? Right. And what and, are you where are you taking money away from? Exactly, right? So this is, you know, a liability that's, you know, going to come to all taxpayers, right? This money that the federal government was expecting to get back and is now going to forgive. Um estimating the exact cost is actually a little difficult because you have to make assumptions about how much of that money would have been repaid, but one estimate is it on average costs every US household Two grand. So it's it's a significant amount of money, right? And then I really question the logic of giving people who are on average better off, i.e., people with a college education, uh, a lot of federal money. It just seems like a really unwise and honestly unjust way to spend everybody's tax dollars. Like, why should they go to people who are making upwards of $100,000, right? People who are in the top 10th percentile of income. Why should they be getting a handout from the government? Okay, so one of my questions was going to be, and maybe you've answered this, like, is it the timing that matters? So would you be like equally opposed to a federal policy that makes 
um, undergraduate education cheaper from the get-go for like an equivalent amount of money. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. So it's, it's the post hoc nature of uh-huh. it that I think is bad policy. Right. So like if we had a policy that say subsidized, uh, public school, uh, like, uh, public university attendance for everybody. Right. So the federal government is going to make it a lot cheaper to go to a state school. I think that would be a great idea. I mean, assuming that you do some things that make sense such that the states can't, can't just then, you know, raise their tuition in order to rake in a bunch of cash, you know, courtesy of the federal government. But, you know, assuming you design it sanely, like a Canadian-esque system where almost every university is a public university and that's heavily subsidized by the government, I think is great. I think it's the post hoc nature of this that it, it is just bad policy. Like you're shoveling more money into a dysfunctional system and you're doing that in large part by giving people who are doing better than the average American a handout. It just seems baffling to me that people are for this. One question I have is, are the people who are getting this forgiveness doing better than the average American? So this is people who have gone to college, have some amount of college debt, over $10,000 of it, I guess, um, and are making, what, less than a hundred grand? Is that the right uh, less than $125,000. Okay. As an individual. Yeah. And but obviously like many of these people are making much less than that. That's right. That's right. That's just the cap, yeah. right? And that's that's roughly the 90th percentile of income. So I one analysis I saw was that it's with the addition of the extra money for the people who are Pell Grant recipients, which basically like doubles the forgiveness for people who uh, were poor enough to qualify for those, the policy is neither regressive nor progressive. That is, you're distributing this kind of roughly equally um, across income. Okay. But I think there's a there's a couple things to keep in mind there. One is your lifetime earnings when you're a college uh-huh. graduate are significantly higher, sure, yeah. right? So I might right now be making 60K, but my lifetime earnings are going to be, on average, like in expectation, much higher than that. Mm-hmm. You're including all of those people who, over the course of their lives, are going to out-earn the average American, because mm-hmm. the average American doesn't go to college, significantly. Mm-hmm. And you're deciding now that they should get $10,000. And the the second thing that really irks me about this is, you know, you don't have to design the policy this way, right? So if you say, okay, we want to help the people who are really struggling— maybe only restricted to people with Pell Grants, maybe restricted to people who are really not making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. That would be a different story. But right now what you're talking about is you know, people who went to medical school and who aren't yet making the salary that a doctor who's completed their residency would make mm-hmm. qualify, mm-hmm. right? What kind of sense does that make? Like, why design the policy that way? It seems bizarre to uh-huh. me. Would you be in favor of this policy if it had a lower cap? Yeah, I think to some extent, if you're helping out people who are really struggling, I still don't think it's gr- a great idea for other reasons because I think it does create some like moral hazard and perverse incentives. But I think it would be a lot more defensible. What really makes it morally indefensible to me is the inclusion of people who are like quite well off, who are like much better off than the average American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard so 
I haven't read that much about the loan forgiveness stuff. I mean, I, I know people who will benefit from it. So mostly I've heard people who are pleased about it. Um, but I have heard criticism basically that it's too, um, it's not tightly restricted enough around people who are not making very much money. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, on a personal level, uh, so I went to university a long time ago when it was cheap, uh, and my parents covered all of it, uh-huh. right? So I'm not affected by this at all. And my girlfriend is maybe going to get $20,000. And of course, on a personal level, I'm really excited that she's maybe going to get $20,000 from the government. Uh-huh. And she's happy about it, for sure. Uh-huh. But she has a PhD and a good job, and she does not need the $20,000, much as, you know, she'll happily take it if the government is offering, right? Uh-huh. It's, it, it, and that's like the perfect example to me of somebody who, you know, sacrificed a lot to go to school to, you know, pay off loans and so on, who is going to be happy if the government mails them a check. But like, why is our policy to give people like that who are out-earning the average American already and whose lifetime earnings are going to be way higher yeah. than average? Why are we giving them a subsidy? Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> but for for your point about the moral hazard and perverse incentives, I think that's a nice segue into the article that I wanted to talk about today. Yes, let's let's segue into that article. What is this article you wanted to talk okay. about today, Alexa? Yeah, so this is something that I um, that I saw in the Atlantic. I guess it was a, maybe a month or two ago. Um, and the the title of the article is The Myth of Independent American Families, and it was written by Stephanie Murray. Um, and the the title sort of stuck out to me um, because personally, I'm sort of like interested in people's decisions about how much to, I guess, rely on their communities. So maybe briefly, I'll just sort of summarize um, what the article talks about. Um so uh, Stephanie Murray claims that like American politicians often talk about how um, Americans want to fo- foster a culture of self-sufficiency and avoid this culture of dependence. Um, and what she's arguing is that um, these policies that supposedly foster self-sufficiency, so things like having less state support for education, as we've been talking about, healthcare, childcare. Um, that instead of uh, fostering self-sufficiency per se, they're actually just fostering dependence on families and communities, right? So instead of like individuals being able to support themselves, um, they are not able to rely on the government, um, but so instead they rely on, say, like their parents um, or their communities, especially for things perhaps like childcare and things like that. Um, And they are the article also sort of contrasts the American approach to um, the approach taken by Nordic countries, um, which are, I guess we typically think of as um, fostering dependence or like allowing dependence. Um, and then what, what Stephanie Murray is arguing is that they are allowing independence from other people, but dependence on the state instead. Um, so yeah, I thought this, you... You had mentioned like, oh, maybe it would be fun to do a topic that is more like sort of personal or not so much like analyzing a scientific article. Um, And I think that this topic to me is sort of interesting from a conceptual level and a political level, but also like um, on a more personal level, how would we ideally choose to live our lives and what level of uh, dependence on other people or the state would we want? Um, 
so yeah, uh, what were your initial thoughts, you all? Yeah, yeah. So I'd like to keep it at the like abstract and political level for just a second. Um, and I think that this article kind of misunderstands the American conservative view of self-sufficiency and not relying on the state. So I think it's a weird straw man to say, well, what conservatives want is that you only rely on yourself. Because I think conservatives are very into civic, religious, community institutions, right? And their case, I think, explicitly is that the state crowds that stuff out. Right. If you know you can rely on the state for a handout, uh, you're not being helped by your local community, by your church group, uh, by people around you. Mm -hmm. So I think their orientation, like, is very much, you know, that's what we want. Um, And we think that the state coming in and taking those functions over is bad or at least worse than, like, they're going to do a worse job than your community members would. But is that? True. So like are conservatives saying like, oh, yeah, you know, we want a system where we're like getting financial help from our neighbors or where like families are supporting kids into their 40s? Well, I don't know if anybody wants families to support kids into their 40s. But the idea that, you know, you belong to a church um, and part of your uh, belonging to the church is that you give part of your income Mm -hmm. um, and that income is used to support members of the community who are not doing well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is like explicitly part of what they want, that these social services are provided in part by religious organizations. So if you look at, you know, I I think the most extreme example is, you know, the Mormon church in Utah, who provides like this vast array of social services Mm -hmm. there. And I think that's what conservatives would like. They think that's better than the government providing those services. Okay. So... Maybe I'm less familiar with how this actually operates than you are, but like, are people relying on their churches for financial help? Well, I don't know if they necessarily would get cash, but they would get in kind. Like, food banks are really common, for example. Yeah. I just feel like that is like a drop in the bucket when we're talking about the kinds of independence or interdependence that would be served by the state. Right, right. I mean, I think it's like a lot of small things that might add up to being kind of a significant amount of support that you get. Mm -hmm. So um, my girlfriend and I in Montreal, we moved uh, a couple weeks ago, and an ex-Mormon friend helped us move. And he was like, well, I'm kind of a moving expert because Mormons never hire movers. (laughs) It's always (laughs) other members of the church come and help you move, right? As if you multiply that, by, you know, all of the little things that you might have to pay for that members of your community can help you with. It could be stuff like childcare. It could be stuff like hand-me-down, clothes and items. Um, that's That can add up, I think, mm-hmm. to be significant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say that as, as I read the article and the article sort of um, criticized, I guess, American, um, the resulting like dependence that Americans have on their communities and their families. I did have the reaction of like, well, that sounds like it can be really nice. Um, And I actually like, I think in some ways try to pursue some of that, like interdependence within communities. And actually, I think that a lot of liberals like that idea too. Um, But maybe the the way that it looks is different than the way that conservatives envision it looking. Um, And the, the author of the article sort of tries to 
I think, anticipate that. Like, oh, this sounds nice. We're relying on our communities. Like, we're not hiring movers or whatever. Um, and then makes an argument about how um, it's better for relationships if we're not, if we're sort of like each self-sufficient or something like that, which maybe we could get into later. Um, but I I did share maybe some of your reaction of like, oh, this this reliance on communities rather than the state in some way sounds appealing. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think we should get into that. But I guess, well, do you want to take the turn for the personal and, and tell us, you know, how much you rely on your community, how much your community relies on you, what that even means um, outside of, you know, I mean, you obviously moved to Alabama, right? So you're in another country, you're not religious, so you're not a member of a church. So what does it mean for you to be reliant in, on your community or vice versa? Yeah. So I guess like that, the idea of relying on and being relied upon by, by community is really appealing to me. Um, and I would say that like the extent to which that actually operates in my life is kind of minimal at the moment. So there are a few contexts in which um, I and my friends um, and my partner talk about this kind of thing. So like one is like sharing living space and things like that. So that that has started to happen a little bit more recently. We have a friend who is like uh, just started her MFA at the University of Alabama, which is in Tuscaloosa. Um, and she lives an hour away in Birmingham. Um, and so she's been um, just started to stay with us like one night a week to make it easier to go to her classes and things like that. And then I have another friend who is in, li- living in Birmingham and may spend some time staying with us. Um, we have we spend quite a bit of time in Birmingham. So we stay with friends like we have a few friends there who we can stay with. Um, so there's like that sort of interdependence in terms of like living situations. And then another thing that um, my friends and I talk a lot about, but we are like not at the stage of implementing this is like uh, sharing childcare. So um, I think childcare can be very expensive and um, you know, the, there's like a good chance that many of us will have kids at the same time. And some of some of my friends already have kids. Um, and so the idea of, yeah, sort of like sharing some of that labor and that like expensive stuff um, sounds nice too. Um, so yeah, those are some ways that it has operated slash may operate or that we've talked about, but never um, like explicit financial, like the degree of like interdependence when it comes to financial stuff is very minimal. Like maybe like if I make more than my friends, I'll pay for more things, but it's, it would, I would never like, I don't know, um, like pay for someone's car repair or something significant like that. And by, by, I would never, I don't mean in principle. I just like mean, in practice. (laughs) Alexa's money is Alexa's money. Okay. (laughs) Um, how would this uh, childcare co-op work, just out of curiosity? Well, I guess I have um, a job that is somewhat flexible, and some of my friends have jobs like that, too. Um, so I think the way that it would work is that um, people would be like in charge of a day um, or something like that. And then perhaps you don't cover all of the days, so there would also be like a day where kids are going to daycare and stuff like that. But many daycares have like part-time options. Um, so just trying to fill in some of the gaps with like people who um, either have flexible jobs or or don't work full time, right? So then, when it's your day, you just you take all the you kids all for the that babies. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that. Um, I guess 
I, I'm back to now like the usefulness of money. I'm like, well, what if somebody wants to participate, but they don't have that flexible a schedule? I mean, maybe they could pay for the daycare for, they could like, you know, pay somebody else to take care of the kids for a day. Right. Does that count? Yeah. Right. So like somebody who has more time than money or something could contribute in some other way. Uh, vice versa. Yep. More money than more, time. More money than time. That's what I meant. Right. Yep. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but all of these things are the community that you're creating is sort of ad hoc, right? It's just like who your friends happen to be. Yeah. 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 I think that's an like such an important distinction because I feel the same way of, you know, I have a a pretty close group of friends here in Toronto and now in Montreal. And I do feel that we really try to help each other out. Um, so a bunch of our friends helped us move, which I you know, appreciate a lot. Um, I went over to my friend's house and helped him fix a washer. Um, another of our friends texted our group chat the other night being like, mm, the Apple store won't give my laptop back and I have to travel and I need a laptop. Does anybody have a spare one mm-hmm. that I could just borrow? You know, stuff like that where it's just, it's nice to be able to rely on other people that way just to fill gaps. Um, and where you know, the state provision of those things doesn't really, I mean, what is the government going to send movers to your house Uh or come fix your washer for you or loan you a laptop, right? It's just like, that's, that is what you need Uh friends for. Um, And we'll house it for each other. We'll, you know, watch each other's pets or plants or, or whatever. Um, Nobody's trusted me to watch their child yet, although I'm open to it. So you know, mm-hmm. that that could be a possibility. I'm um, impressed that somebody trusted you to help them repair their washer. Is that what you said? I didn't know you had practical skills. I, you know what? I'm I'm hurt, but not surprised <laughs> that you're underestimating me in this way. I'm actually pretty good with small home repairs. So yeah, this is like the washer was making a crazy noise. And so get this. What happened is there's these rods in there that are supposed to stabilize the drum during shipping. And they hadn't taken them out. So then when it was uh, like trying to run the cycle, the drum was banging into these rods and it was making this like super loud noise. Whoa. So, but we only discovered that after we took the washer apart, right? So it was, it was quite a job. Wow. Um, yeah. That was, so yeah, stuff like that. Like I, I like doing those sorts of things and I think it's nice to be able to help people out with that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then they obviously like reciprocate for us. Um, but again, it's like, not like I'm, a member of some like more formal community. This is literally just like a group of our friends. And so I feel like those ties are, I mean, in some ways they're stronger. And I guess this gets to the autonomy point that we'll maybe get to, like we've voluntarily chosen to be friends with these people and enter into these arrangements. But there's also something about that that's weaker, right? Like if you're in a religious community, it's those, those ties are, sort of there regardless of like your choices and i think there's kind of a stronger like a kind of more solid feeling that you have knowing that those people are going to be there for you because it's just you know it's what they do it's not optional does that sound appealing to you like um like a more sort of like duty bound um interdependence where like you have to move like your friends (laughs) Honestly, not particularly. Yeah. No, no. Uh, that, that sounds like it could be kind of terrible because like, I think oftentimes like you do, you don't like all those people, right? And yeah. maybe you find a lot of them annoying and yet you have to help them move anyway. 
that doesn't sound great to me. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, I do sometimes feel like, particularly now that I'm like going back and forth between Toronto and Montreal this semester, and I have friends in both places, but I do feel a little bit like adrift, you know, like I kind of don't belong anywhere. And so in that sense, that like kind of strong sense of community is kind of appealing to me. Like I at least would know where I'm supposed to be in that sort of situation. Uh-huh. Yeah. I will also say that like the kinds of examples that we've been giving um, of like relying on other people, um, that all of that stuff is like is really lovely, but it just becomes pretty unrealistic when the demand is really big. So I think I've shared one of these examples before on the podcast, but yeah, a friend of mine who had like a, like a broken or a chipped tooth and didn't have um, dental insurance through her grad school program and like basically did like a fundraiser to be able to pay to fix her tooth and was in a lot of pain. And then I had another friend who um, was, I think it was like some kind of car accident where again, basically she like went on Instagram and asked people to give her money um, to like help her pay for this because she didn't have enough. And so there's just things where the, yeah, the like cost is, is, so high that it's it's hard to get a significant amount of help from from like just your friends or whatever um or or maybe you can get that help but it would be like much nicer to be able to rely on the state um i have another friend who's like um grandmother has dementia and so she is um like having her grandmother live with her while she also has like a full-time job and um like those kinds of things are I feel like the I feel like it would be really stressful to have to rely on the community and the community probably can't help you as much as you need. Yeah. So I mean there may be like a broader or larger community like uh a church that's like well established in an area like is a good solution for that, right? So like the 10 of your friends' friends can't realistically come up with the amount of money that it would take to fix our teeth. But like, if everybody contributes across a congregation of hundreds or thousands, it starts to seem more realistic. Mm. And the same with you know care for the elderly. Um, that's something you can't realistically ask you know, you know your friends to help out with. But I think there, if there are institutions like social institutions where it's just kind of like a mandatory part of your service to your community that you go and help out with things that starts to seem more realistic too. Right. But I mean, wouldn't it be better to have those things taken care of by the state than by churches? Some people don't go to yes. church. Right. No, I, I absolutely, I, I absolutely do think that. Right. But I, I guess it's just a way of agreeing with you that, you know, you need some institution that's bigger mm-hmm. than like your friend circle. Mm-hmm. Right. So that could be the state, that could be some like larger community or religious institution, but it's not going to be you and like 10 of your friends making that happen. Mm
do we want to talk about the uh, approach to paying for college and generally the support that particularly American parents tend to give their kids? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, my one question that I have for you is, so you have experience with the American system and the Dutch system and the Canadian system. Yep, that's right. So, like, in your experience, um, yeah, how much uh, of a financial role are parents playing in those three systems? Yeah, so... In the American system, I mean, as a student, when I went to school, um, I paid in-state tuition in California, Mm -hmm. or more accurately, my parents paid it. Um, And then they helped me out a little bit with living expenses, but mainly I had a job. Okay. So that was, I mean, it's honestly back then, the status quo in California is more akin to what you would find in in Canada or in the Netherlands today. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, you did pay. To go, but it was tuition was quite cheap. Do you remember what it was? I think it was like five thousand, maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I I can look this up. Maybe I'm off, but I mean, these are also. Uh, God, when did I go to school? Nineteen ninety six dollars, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, well, this was like fifty years comparable. ago, so you have to. Yeah, exactly here. right. Yeah, it cost a, a a nickel for every class you attended. <laughs> you just put it in the jar. Um, yeah, so so it was just less of a. I mean, if you wanted to go to a fancy private school, it was still obviously expensive, um, but it was like less of a financial burden in general, particularly to send your kid to a to a state school. Um, and now I I teach at uh, the University of Toronto, where the tuition is around. You look this up around five thousand dollars U.S., which is so around bonkers to me because I thought. I thought that it was that when I went to school. So so they just maybe haven't increased it? I guess. I mean, I didn't go to the University of Toronto for undergrad. I went to Western. Um, but maybe I'm misremembering, but I thought that that was, that was sort of what tuition was when I was, which is a long time ago, like 14 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe they've just kept it constant. Um, and in the Netherlands, it was also, um, you know, not free, but... Uh, it was heavily subsidized such that it wasn't like super onerous, particularly considering, you know, the value of a degree. Mm -hmm. Um, Like it was a very worthwhile investment Mm -hmm. to go to university. Um, Whereas in the U S I mean, even the state school tuition now is quite a bit more expensive. Uh, So it's around 13,000 at the university of California. I looked that up. Uh Uh, University of Alabama, I see you looked up is around eleven six, yeah. right? So it's you know you'd even leaving out living expenses. If you're not getting any sort of grants, you'd end up if and you're trying to pay yourself, you'd end up forty thousand dollars in debt. Yeah, which still I would say you know given the boost in earnings that you get from a college degree is is definitely worth it. But it's like it's a significant amount of money, right? Um, yeah. So so yeah, like. I, I do think that we ought to be subsidizing higher education and that it's a good value um, socially mm-hmm. um, and individually. Uh, so it, I think it's a good investment. But I I also really want to stress like the public schools, like the ones that I went to and the ones that I teach at, they are just less nice than the fancy private schools. And so that's part of having the public pay 
is that the thing that you provide um, might give kind of equivalent educational value, but it's less cushy than a $50,000 a year private school, right? right? Like the facilities aren't as nice. The classes are bigger. You get less individualized attention. Uh Um, And this coming back to this student loan thing, like the, one of the things that are, that's pathological, I think about the U S is that the government will let you borrow basically unlimited amounts of money to go to crazy expensive mm-hmm. private schools yeah. that are providing like every amenity under the sun and that compete to provide ever nicer amenities. Uh-huh. And the taxpayer is subsidizing this. And I think that's nuts. Like, I think if the taxpayer is subsidizing it, there needs to be some consideration of like, well, how nice does this need to be right. to like meet the the needs that society has for, for higher education? What? So I'm not sure. I'm trying to figure out how to ask this. What I want to ask is like, what proportion of, of people should we have go through college like in an ideal society? Um, but part of what I am curious about is not just like what that would be in our current society, but um, what that would look like if we sort of changed um, jobs expectations for people's um, qualifications. So like, yeah, do you, do you think that um, what do you think that universities are providing and does everybody need this? Do 50% of people need this? Like, Yeah. Yeah. So I think in the U.S. Uh, it's around 30%, maybe 35% of people who have a four-year degree. And I think even that is a bit high. Uh, I think that a lot of jobs require a four-year degree. Uh, just in order to set the bar higher or as as some sort of filter and uh-huh. that that is not a good idea like i think that we could be doing a lot better as the netherlands does i actually don't know the situation in canada at tracking people to programs that are shorter but that equip them with specific skills okay uh so so even you know mds um in the netherlands you know, in the U.S., obviously, you go through a four-year undergraduate degree and then four years of med school. Mm-hmm. And in the Netherlands, um, aspiring MDs are tracked to a program that is a lot shorter mm-hmm. um, and that prepares you specifically to be a doctor. Um, and I think as as long as the government is paying for it, I think that's the way that it ought to be done. Uh-huh. Um, and that this idea in the U.S. that, you know, in order to be a person of worth or to be successful at all, you need an undergraduate degree I think is really corrosive. Um, I think it's it's wrong, um, and I think it's it, leading people to make bad decisions um, to pursue degrees that they don't really need or shouldn't need. Uh-huh. It's extremely expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I sort of like waffle on this because uh, on the one hand, the idea of increasing like access to education is appealing to me. Um, and I do think there's, there are lots of aspects of doing an undergraduate degree that are valuable. Um, but then I also see like the number of students, for instance, in my classes and like the enrollment at UA just like increases dramatically year to year. Um, yeah, right now I'm teaching a history and systems class that 
last semester had 200 students in it. This semester has 230. And I know that are, there are many classes that are bigger. I've taught 101 classes that are 400 students. And I'm also right now teaching um, a class in... So UA has this sort of like liberal arts program within the school that's supposed to create like a liberal arts feel within like this broader state school. So I'm teaching a class with them um, where I have, I think it's like 14 students or something like that. And I also have a TA. And so these students write like an essay a week um, and they get this detailed feedback on their essays. And the like value of their experience is just like so much better than the students who are in my 230 person class. Like those students are getting like extremely minimal feedback on their work. They're not improving their writing skills in any way. Like, um, whereas the, the students in the small class are like, I actually think that they will get much better at writing over the semester. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I just like worry about our capacity to provide valuable education um, to many, many more students. Um, and then obviously like if you, um, increase that capacity, um, that becomes more expensive. Yeah. I mean, cynically you could say, okay, well, the research shows that there's this, you know, big premium that you can command as an employee if you have a college degree versus not. Uh, but you might say, well, is it really about what you've learned or is it about employers want you to demonstrate that you're able to go get uh, an undergrad degree, right? So in, in, in some way, you might think uh, it's actually like not that relevant whether you've taught them anything useful at all. They've just demonstrated their ability to go get a credential. When you say ability to go get a credential, do you mean like the ability to like not fail, basically? Or do you mean like to pay for it? No, no, to just not fail, okay. right? You've demonstrated that you can like sit there and pay attention and do some arbitrary stuff and like not fail. And that's what the employer wants some proof of. And your undergraduate degree is the proof of that. So you don't actually need to have learned any. I mean, I'm making that case much more strongly than I actually believe, but I think that's the like the most cynical take on it. That that's what employers are actually looking for. Yeah. Um, so, and I do think, you know, places that are, you know, you have to have an, a four-year degree to be an administrative assistant. I, I just don't understand, like, what is the case for the skills that you're supposed to have learned in university mm -hmm. that justify that requirement? Mm -hmm. And so it, in those kinds of cases, does seem like just a pure uh, gatekeeping requirement. Right. So what was your, like, what's your take having been, you know, obviously a product of our fine Canadian higher educational system and now being in the US. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess I'll preface what I'm saying with just, I also, in some ways I feel like I, um, well, okay, yeah, I, like you, my parents supported me like very heavily through college and my college was not that expensive to begin with. Um, so that meant that I didn't end up with debt. Um, and then, yeah, I guess I, compare that experience to people who went to college around the same time that I did within the U.S. Um, and have this sort of like debt hanging over them. So, yeah, I mean, when we were talking about debt forgiveness earlier, I mean, I was very like, 
I, I see your criticisms of it, but um, I also, yeah, I'm sort of sympathetic to the people who I feel like have been in some ways a little bit like screwed over by such a, um, such a harsh system that is so expensive. Um, yeah, it seems kind of insane to have people trying to start out in their careers with like $40,000 of debt hanging over their heads. Um, and maybe as you say, people are starting out in careers that are ultimately, um, going to pay them really well, but just like anecdotally, I know like a lot of people who, um, yeah, don't, don't have like a career like that immediately on the horizon for them. Um, it's more obvious for things like where you have a med school degree or whatever. Um, and I also am pretty intimidated by the idea of, uh, raising kids in the U S and paying for their college. Um, but I also am still a Canadian citizen, so, you know, maybe, maybe I'll just send yeah. them to Canada. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, get that, hopefully, by that time, still cheap education here. You know, if you want, like, maximal government support raising your kids, Quebec is really the place to be. I would love they to have, be in Quebec. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come to Montreal. They They... The government subsidized childcare. There is a waiting list for it, but it's so cheap and it's really good. And the government puts a ton of money into it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's very explicitly. I mean, this is this is actually kind of a funny way to think about this that a little bit runs contrary to the thesis of the piece that you sent, which is, I guess, to me, you know, the uh, the Nordic countries are supporting these things that we like, like personal autonomy and the ability to choose whether you want to have relationships with people rather than having those be the result of dependence, financial dependence that you have on them. Um, so, you know, we like those motivations for having generous social welfare programs. I mean, you and I do because we're into those mm -hmm. things. Quebec's motivation, as I take it, is they're extremely nationalistic uh -huh. and they want Quebecers to have more French-speaking kids. And so that's why, uh -huh. right? Like they do, they they have just generally like these pro-natalist policies, but it comes from this kind of nationalism uh -huh. that's a little bit, you know, uncomfortable yeah. like for an outsider, uh -huh. right? Um, and I think that in a, in a way that kind of illustrates how hard it is to get away from these like very in-groupy motivations for doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, whether it's a church or a government, these like tight ties that have to do with a perceived similarity and background and culture um, and, you know, attitudes towards the world, those motivate people to help each other out. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, there's another one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, um, which is the sort of, I mentioned this earlier in the episode, the sort of pushback against this. Um, do we really want to be like the Nordic countries that are, you know, stripping away our community support or replacing our community support or whatever? Then one of the arguments against that is um, that we can only really be good supports for each other or work in functional relationships with people who we depend on and who depend on us if we're in some ways sort of autonomous. Um, so this like argument is made, I guess, at this sort of societal level, but also um, 
at the level of individual relationships. Um, the idea that, yeah, in order to have healthy relationships, um, even like in a romantic sense or something, each person has to be pr fairly autonomous and not reliant on the other um, or, or really dependent on the other. Um, what do you think of that? That doesn't seem right to me. So to me, close relationships are all about dependence, if only emotional dependence. So I think a relationship, like let's say a long-term romantic relationship, where we're autonomous to the point that you know, we both know that whenever we want, we could just move on and pay no emotional price for it. Like, I don't know what kind of relationship that is. Like the romantic relationships that I have, like I'm very emotionally invested in my partner. And if the relationship were to end, I would be very hurt and unhappy. Uh -huh. And okay, that's not financial dependence. They're not paying my rent, mm -hmm. but it still is dependence and it's necessary dependence. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what the difference is between that and, you know, in principle and, well, we, you know, split the rent or maybe they pay, pay a larger share of it. So if we broke up, I would have to move to a worse place. And I, I think the same with parents and children, right? I'm, I like my parents a lot. Like we're, I would say, you know, very close in our own way. Uh, I worry about them a lot. Um, I worry about them getting older and I don't know that I that you can remove that kind of dependence on somebody and have the relationship still be what it is. Uh-huh. Yeah, so there's an example given in the article and I think this this broader idea comes from um the book The Swedish Theory of Love, uh Individualism and Social Trust in Modern Sweden, um which is written by uh Trägard and Berggren. Um that's my best effort to pronounce names. That wow, I was gonna say, great. Have you been studying your Swedish? <laughs> I did look look up one of those names before, right before we started. But um, we'll see if listeners can guess which one I practiced. Um, so, uh, yeah, there. The example that's given in the article is one of, um, yeah, like a woman who can't leave a really unhealthy relationship because she's so financially dependent on her partner um, and like, or needs her partner's health insurance or something like that. Um, so yeah, I don't know, maybe my reaction is sort of like a boring, you know, it depends on the extent, right? Like I can't imagine having a meaningful romantic relationship or relationship even with friends where you feel like you could leave at any time and there'd be no skin off your back. Like that seems antithetical to the idea of becoming attached to people and caring about them. And, um, and like in particular in romantic situations, like being a partner with someone. Um, but I also think I, you know, you can imagine a situation where you're so dependent on the other person that it's impossible for you to leave. And that also seems like a bad thing. So, I mean, yeah, when I think about, my own like romantic relationship, I do think that it is important to feel like, you know, if, if one of us like really felt like they needed to leave, that it would be possible. Um, maybe not easy, but that, that to me is sort of comforting because then it feels like continuing to be in the relationship is a choice. Yeah. I mean, that's always the, the tricky, like nearly paradoxical thing, mm -hmm. right? Like you, 
you don't want it to be that your partner is only with you because they so fear being alone. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I would hope. (laughs) But at the same time, like that kind of dependence and the idea that you would be really deeply hurt in a way that might take you years to get over if you lost that person is part of having like a really strong, meaningful relationship with another person, whether that's romantic or not. Mm -hmm. And I don't want friends or romantic partners who are just like, well, yeah, I could take you or leave you, you know, Uh and I'm sure you're, yeah, I would be able to replace you immediately and I would never think about you again. It's like, no, that sounds terrible too. Yeah, right. I mean, I wonder if this, like, putting this in relationship terms is a little bit of a red herring. And if if you're talking about, like, what policy should be and you should, well, I mean, I mean, I kind of feel like our policy should be that people don't have to be in situations that are so desperate that for survival reasons, they are choosing to do things that they really don't want to do. So you could think of being in a job that you really hate and that's totally soul-crushing and you would love to go out on your own and start your own business, but you can't because you wouldn't have health insurance, mm-hmm. right? That has a similar kind of feeling to me of you provide people certain kinds of supports so that they don't need to stay in situations that are really bad for them. Isn't that consistent with a parallel to relationships? Like you want... Well, I, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I... I think like focusing on relationships per se is just a little misleading because it's just part of a, like that's one example of like a much broader um, idea of what you're trying to do there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Have we, do you think we've done this article justice? Have we covered everything that you wanted to cover? Yes, I think we have. Excellent. Um, So I just, you know, I've been thinking while we've been having this conversation about, you know, you're talking about this like, having your friends stay with you uh, a day a week or something. And yeah, I've been reading about this idea of, of group housing, um, which is big in the Bay Area, as I understand it, in part because um, it's just so expensive to live there, but also because this is a thing that, like, for some reason, like, overlaps a lot with, like, the rationalist community, of which there's a lot mm. there. And this idea that, like, you know, 10 unrelated adults would get a house together, um... Also, it seems like a lot of the time they're in like polyamorous relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's necessary or not. But then you would like, you know, share, um, you know, household work, childcare. Like some people might have kids. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like involved in bringing them up. And I was like, that, I, that sounds kind of awesome. Uh-huh. I could kind of be into that. Yeah, it sounds really appealing to me. It's also interesting that like you give this example because, yeah, we've been talking this whole time about this article that characterizes the the like Swedish system and the Nordic systems, I guess, as ones that prevent that from being necessary. But the examples that I have of those kinds of like alternative living arrangements and sort of like commune style um, setups are mostly from Nordic places. So like I have a friend who lives in Copenhagen and um, she lives with like a group of adults who are unrelated to her and there are like kids there half the time based on somebody's like custody agreement. And maybe that's just like idiosyncratic, like the person that I happen to know or the people that I happen to know. But yeah, I guess like from, from the friends that I've had who live in Nordic countries, that seems to be more common in some ways, these sort of like communal situations. Yeah. So from that perspective, I mean, maybe if we're taking the perspective of the 
authors of this book or the article or whatever, you might say like, well, you know, giving people the freedom to choose that or not right. is actually what we're all about, right. right? Or it might be that housing in the Nordic countries is really expensive too, yeah, right? right? <laughs> and it, <laughs> that's the way that you can afford a bigger place. Um, I also do think like it might be that the thing that you choose to do totally unconstrained isn't the thing that actually makes you happy. Like, you know, you think you want your own space. Uh, you think you want to be alone, but actually, you know, you'd be happier living around a bunch of other people. Uh -huh. Like, I'm not convinced people can predict their own preferences that well. Uh -huh. And actually, like, I've considered that in the other direction as well. Like, um, you know, like, Megan and I talk about the idea of, yeah, uh, maybe not like sharing a house with people, but like, um, living very close to other people and sharing lots of things, like sort of like what you're describing, but like a light version. Um, but I also don't know that I wouldn't find that like really annoying. Like sometimes I'm really pleased to come home from work and be like, I just get to hang out with Megan and nobody else. And like, you know, sometimes that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. I have a colleague who comes from a, a, a smaller town in a, South American country. Um, yeah, actually, I'm not positive about the small town part. But anyway, it's it's much less individualistic. And it's like your friends and uh, relatives are constantly, you know, around. And I was like, oh, do you ever miss that community? And it was like, no, it's terrible. They're constantly up in your business. Yeah, right, right. This, <laughs> I'd much rather live by myself uh -huh. or, you know, with my family in the suburbs where they can't come and Yeah. Yeah, so there's, you know, we may we may be romanticizing this. Grass is like, always greener. That's right. Six months in the group home, I'd be like, will you people fucking <laughs> shut up? And why are there dirty dishes in the sink? Fix your own washer. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Can't be bothered. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I, you know what I would really like is if we have any listeners in, you know, Sweden, Norway, yeah. Denmark, if they could write in and tell us whether we've missed the mark here. I'd be very curious to hear. Yeah, that would be, that'd be great. <laughs>